From the Chattanooga Area Chamber of Commerce, I'm Jeremy Henderson. And I'm Christy Gillenwater, and this is Chattanooga Works. What makes an epidemic? Well, from the time you woke up this morning to the time you go to sleep tonight, 115 Americans will have died from an opioid overdose. If the trend continues, opioids will have claimed the lives of 1 million people by 2020. Alongside the staggering human cost, the economic burden of prescription opioid misuse in the U.S. alone is $78.5 billion a year. All of this is to say that addiction is not a uniquely Chattanooga problem, but today we're going to tell you the stories of people trying to come up with uniquely Chattanooga solutions. A big part of what makes opioids so pernicious is that most addicts get access to them from prescriptions, either their own or someone else's. Blue Cross Blue Shield of Tennessee decided to combat this issue head-on with their Don't Be an Accidental Drug Dealer campaign, for which they won a prestigious national PR award. They did this in part by allowing Tennesseans to tell their own stories. We are joined now by Mary Danielson, Director of Corporate Communications from Blue Cross Blue Shield of Tennessee. Uh, Welcome, Mary. Thank you. Happy to be here. Absolutely. Thank you for being here. We wanted to have you on today to talk about your Don't Become an Accidental Drug Dealer campaign. Absolutely happy to talk about that every chance I get because it helps <laughs> to spread the message and hopefully make an impact here in the state. Sure. And you, you guys just recently won a major national award for that, right? We did. We received the Best of Silver Anvil, which is given out by the Public Relations Society of America. So for PR practitioners, it's our version of the Grammys or the Emmys. Congratulations. Thank you. Very big deal. (laughs) Kind of like a a career highlight for all of us at Blue Cross who worked on the campaign. Uh, And it's a great campaign. Um, Can you tell us uh, a little bit about uh, what it is? Sure. Count It, Lock It, Drop It is an endeavor. It's a grassroots program that was established in Coffee County. It's an organization that we partnered with to spread their message around the state as we work to combat the opioid epidemic in Tennessee. So back in 2015, actually, our CEO and others uh, at the company, those that worked in the pharmacy on the medical side, um, understood that there was a growing problem with the number of opioids that we were prescribing. And then as we also covered or monitored what was being covered in the news, we realized that there was a problem in the state. So our CEO tasked us as the state's largest, you know, healthcare carrier to do something about it. So we tried to tackle the issue from two sides of the equation, the clinical side where we could, through best practices and pharmacy management, work to ensure that our members receiving the right medications at the right time in the right way, and then also have a social wraparound to it so that, you know, for anybody beyond our own membership who would still obviously benefit from hearing the message, but for all Tennesseans to be out there talking about what they could do, what simple steps they could take to make an impact to, you know, reverse the course of the opioid trends in Tennessee. Okay. Uh, Great. Um, Could you talk a little bit about what that awareness campaign looked like? Absolutely. We found... Uh, a little organization out of Coffee County, Tennessee, uh, an anti-drug coalition, who had been out there for a few years. Uh, I think their program started around 2012. 
count it, lock it, drop it. Three simple steps uh, that these uh, two wonderful, uh, passionate women came up with because in Coffee County, they realized that they had a problem probably sooner than we saw at a statewide level. Uh, and they knew it when they saw more pain management clinics in Coffee County than they had McDonald's. Mm, wow. wow. So they immediately wanted to do something to improve their own community. And their message resonated with us. It's three simple steps, a direct call to action that anybody can take. You know, sometimes a problem becomes so large and overwhelming that you think, what can I possibly do about it? Well, very simply, you can count your prescriptions in your home. You can secure them in a safe place, lock them up. And then you can dispose of them safely at a drop box in your community, whether that be at a law enforcement facility or at a local pharmacy who has a, dis- a dispensing box. And are, are there any of those uh, located here locally in Chattanooga that you could point people towards? Yes. Uh, City of East Ridge, City of Red Bank, here in Chattanooga at the various police precincts, they have the drop boxes. Also Walgreens here locally. Uh, have drop boxes, and we've partnered with Walgreens, and we've co-branded um, with their um, organization to have the boxes in the pharmacies there. Okay. Uh, speaking of the pharmacies, uh, could you speak a little bit about the the other side of this, working with them um, to ensure uh, accurate prescriptions? So we have a really great relationship with the Tennessee Pharmacy Association, and in fact, the Count It, Lock It, Drop It program through some additional funding excuse me, from our foundation uh, are getting ready to uh, launch an education program with the pharmacies across the state about the Count It, Lock It, Drop It message. Okay. And Mary, you know, obviously being a chamber of commerce, uh, we like to provide resources to other businesses. I mean, can other businesses uh, be a part of this campaign and where would they go for resources? Well, absolutely. One of the things that employers, a very simple step that an employer can take is educating their employees about the epidemic. Uh, It would be surprising uh, to know that they already are very aware of it, but, you know, what can they do again to help curtail the problem here in Tennessee. And that's counting, locking, and dropping your pills. So it's just a matter of educating your employees, whether that be through company newsletters, your intranet site, any meetings that you know your management teams would host with your employees, just to make them aware uh, of those actions and then provide them the URL, countitlockitdropit.org, that they can go to to get more information and find the drop box locator. Um, so I named some places off the top of my head where I know the boxes are located, but there is a uh, locator device. You plug in your zip code and it will tell you, you know, within however many mile radius, there is a box near you. Excellent. And we'll include some of those uh, resources in the, the show notes as well. Um, part of your awareness campaign was, was telling the stories of people who have struggled uh, with with opioid addiction or had a family member um, that they lost to it in some cases. Um, how did you go about um, selecting those stories to tell? When we first realized that we wanted to put a face to the epidemic, we thought that we would have some difficulty finding stories. Obviously, you know, some individuals don't want to either admit to having a problem or want to share something so personal about what's impacted their loved ones. But the very first story came about through Facebook. 
And there was a Blue Cross employee that I was connected to via that platform. And I saw a post that she made about losing her 24-year-old daughter. And based on how she wrote her post, I made the assumptions that perhaps drugs were involved. And I cautiously reached out to her and we had a, a very wonderful conversation and she willingly allowed her story to be told to our own employees at Blue Cross. And when we posted her story on our employee intranet, I was really surprised by the number of our own employees at the company who shared stories of friends or loved ones, you know, stepchildren who were battling or who had you know, unfortunately lost the battle uh, to opioids here in Tennessee. So it was surprising uh, how many stories were available, and it was wonderful to know that there were so many individuals willing to share, hoping that by sharing their story, they could make an impact. So when we launched our campaign, uh, we had uh, an op-ed run in several newspapers across the state about um, our employee Beth and her daughter's story. And then we recently had a televised uh, uh, spot on TV radio about another employee that unfortunately lost her young daughter as well. So this is this is a personal mission for a lot of it's a passion pro it's a passion project for a lot of us. Uh, you know, members of my own team have had family members impacted. So to know that we're involved in something that can make a real difference um, is truly joyful to be involved in. Well, and I think that probably speaks to the the size of the crisis. Um, you know that it it did grow to such a point that um, it it has touched so many people, um, and I imagine that Blue Cross you know sees a lot of those effects uh, coming before a lot of people. Potentially true. So back in 2015, when we were 2015, 16, when we were looking at the issue. You know, we realized, looking at our claims data, that we had covered more than one million opioid prescriptions for our wow. members. Mm -hmm. And then, coupled with the fact that we were second at the time in prescribing nationally opioids, and that we were fourth, I believe it was, in overdose uh, overdose deaths, then that's you know, very telling that there's a problem besides, you know, other warnings and coverage that, you know, we were seeing at the time across the state. Um, so are there any steps you can recommend people take? Um, uh, obviously, the steps after the fact, um, counting, counting their prescriptions, uh, disposing of the ones they don't need. Um, but it sounds like there's a significant amount of overprescription happening um, throughout our country, honestly. Um, is there anything that uh, patients can do up front to, to be aware um, ahead of time? The best thing that an individual can do if they're prescribed an opioid by their physician is to ask questions, just as you would really with any medical condition. Ask questions. Don't be afraid to ask those questions and truly understand the benefits, but as well as you know, the risks or the cons of the particular medication. So that really, it holds true for anything. But um, given that opioids has overtaken so many individuals and because of its addictive nature, then it's even more important to have those conversations and to gain understanding, whether that's directly through your physician, your pharmacist are, is always willing to help. Um, many employers, again, have education programs in place 
or the, the internet itself. So questions such as, you know, what will my level of pain be? How many days of pain will I have? Do I have other options? Should I move to something else, you know, or can I move to something else? Absolutely. After a is there of an days? alternative drug therapy yes. that I can mm-hmm. take, or is there uh, an alternative uh, such as acupuncture, or would massage therapy benefit me, or just a general exercise program? And then, yes, you know, if I have leftover pills, should I keep them? Uh, if I have, you know, some breakthrough pain, if you will, what should I do at that point in time? And it's just always best to engage your medical professional and ask them those questions. That's what they're there for. Well, and I imagine you would encourage anyone to be an informed healthcare consumer, um, you know, for, for anything, uh, regardless of what it is. Uh, doctors are certainly experts, uh, but you're, you know, you're in your own body. Um, so as, asking them questions, I think, is is extremely good advice. Um, local businesses uh, can go about uh, raising the awareness of their employees. Um, is it possible for them to participate in any of the sort of um, take-back campaigns that, that have been um, done to uh, collect um, ec- excess medication? Um, is there anything else that they can do to get involved? Well, they can definitely share information with their employees about the availability of the permanent drop boxes on a regular basis. But twice a year in the months of October and April, the Drug Enforcement Agency Administration, they will send out uh, information about their take-back events. And they're set up at area pharmacies like Walgreens and or at uh, churches, various organizations that obviously believe in the cause. And in many cases, it's just a drive up. You drive up in your car and you can drop off your medications and the professionals there will help to collect them and properly dispose of them for you. Great. Um, you're uh, the sort of spokesperson for your campaign was was Miss Tennessee. Yes. Um, could, could you speak a little bit about how she got connected with you and became involved? Yes. Katie Davis, uh, Miss Tennessee 2017. Uh, was an instrumental part of our campaign. We had already launched and been in the campaign eight or nine months and then happened across a Facebook post and saw where her platform was attack addiction. And uh, this wonderful young lady has unfortunately been impacted by the epidemic. Her stepbrother and her father both succumbed to the disease of addiction and she was more than happy to lend her help to the cause. And so she represented the Count It, Lock It, Drop It campaign as its ambassador and went out on numerous speaking engagements and, you know, uh, media appearances for us helping to deliver that message. And she's got quite a following. She's an exceptional young lady. Uh, and, you know, she's just your hometown girl, you know, that all-American girl, just to know that she's you know, had to, you know, deal with such an ugly issue, you know, the, you know, the, the, the pain and the suffering and everything that comes with, you know, an opioid epidemic when it hits a family, you know, unfortunately, some people have stereotypes. And if they did, she would definitely break that one. How has the reaction been to the campaign so far? Have have you seen, um, it's, it's still early days, um, to some degree, I know, but have you seen a lot of results come out of this we, today? We have, uh, in the three years that we have been engaged with the campaign, we launched officially in August of 2016. Uh, through the permanent drop boxes and through uh, the take-back events, 
we've uh, had Tennesseans drop off 54 tons of medications, wow. unused mm. or expired medications. It's a significant number. And with each take back event, we've hit another record with the amounts that have come in. That's fantastic. And of course, some of it you can't really track, right? That individual who has the conversation with their doctor and only receives five pills instead of 30. But at the same time, uh, you know you're having an impact just with those results alone. Absolutely. And and then uh, we've done um, some pre-post research, obviously surveys, as we've you know been engaged in the campaign. And since we launched the campaign, we've grown the awareness of the Count It, Lock It, Drop It message by 160%. Wow. That's amazing. Um, and it sounds like uh, you're, you were sourcing social media to a significant degree during this. Um, so has the response there been, been positive as well? It's been very positive. Uh, we realized that we needed uh, an integrated marketing approach to delivering the message. So uh, we used every available platform channel that we had at our disposal. So we had uh, paid advertising which we did heavy buys, obviously, in the Northeast marketplace because, you know, all throughout Appalachia, but in particular in the Knoxville Tri-Cities area, they've got a lot of hot spot counties, if you will, that have been adversely impacted by the opioid epidemic. So we had a lot of heavy TV, radio buys there, but uh, through social media, a lot of organic and a lot of sponsored posts that we did to drive the messaging and then every opportunity we had to be in front of an audience, we tried to take advantage of that to, you know, deliver those face-to-face messages. Switching gears slightly, can you chat a little bit more in depth about the clinical side of the house? So the campaign has had tremendous impacts, but on the clinical side of awareness and your relationships there and progress you're making on that side. Yeah, absolutely. So on the clinical side of the equation, we've had great success in what we've done to try to set best practices and protocols in place to ensure our members' safety, again, ensuring that they're getting the right drug at the right time and that they're informed as well as their physicians are informed and following, you know, the best protocols that are in place, you know, as directed by the CDC. So since we launched uh, those efforts, we've seen 194,000 fewer prescriptions filled, and that's about 12 million pills, or 6% per member per month fewer. That's incredible. Yeah. Fantastic. And in our ranking, our national ranking, we've seen a decrease. So obviously, uh, you know, hopefully your campaign continues to help our incidence numbers and rankings in terms of opioid challenges. We know we're not the sole cause of any positive movement on any ranking or chart that's out there about the epidemic as people are monitoring and tracking what's happening. Uh, But we're doing our small part, but it will take everybody in the community, whether that is a government entity through legislative action, whether that's, you know, a corporation such as ours, you know, being involved from a philanthropic standpoint or what we can do. But, you know, as we said before, Anybody can make an impact, you know, just through education and conversation. So, you know, the more employers can educate their employees about their own health, which would include, you know, the effects potentially of an opioid prescription, you know, and that that individual then can easily do something, too, by just simply counting, locking, and dropping off their pills. We're, we're doing our small part. Good for you. Thanks for boldly leading in this very important space. 
so important in Blue Cross Blue Shield of Tennessee. You, you continue to step up on big opportunities in the community and in the state. And here is another example where you're just a, a shining example of what a company can do to be proactive and try to set a sea of change on something that is a challenge for so many in the community. Thank you. Thank you so much. We're, you know, we're, we're right here and we want to be right here for our members and the community in any way we can. Uh, is there anything else you, you want to cover before we wrap up? Count at lockitdropit.org. It's a, a great resource, and if you want to find a place to dispose of your medications, you can find it in the Dropbox locator there. Excellent. Uh, thank you, Mary, for being here. Okay, thank you both. Thank you, Mary. Appreciate it. Unfortunately, there are no quick fixes for the puzzle of addiction. It's complex and requires long-term commitment. Fortunately, Cadis has been putting those pieces together for more than 50 years. In an industry that can be difficult for patients to navigate, Cadis serves as a stellar example of effective, compassionate treatment. We are joined now by Debbie Loudermilk, Director of Outpatient Services at Cadis. Welcome, Debbie. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. So could you tell us a little bit about what CADIS is and uh, what you guys do? Absolutely. I'm glad to do so. CADIS is a nonprofit private treatment center here in Chattanooga. Um, we are a large full continuum treatment facility. And CADIS actually stands for, if I may, a lot of people are like, what does CADIS stand for? Uh, CADIS stands for the Council for Alcohol and Drug Abuse Services. Um, A little bit about our history is, you know, CADIS began, we've been in this community for a long time. Um, We began in 1964 as a kind of a vision of some private businessmen in this area Um, And so I'm glad to talk about that some and tell you it's pretty interesting, rich history that we have and where we where we came from and where we are today is kind of a a fun journey to talk about. Okay, Um, excellent. So and you guys serve you're located on the North Shore, but you serve pretty much the entire Chattanooga community? Well, we actually are located on the North Shore in a very prime piece of real estate now. It yes. wasn't so prime a few years ago, but of course now the North Shore is a very hot area. Uh, we are on the North Shore right off Cherokee Boulevard, surrounded by you know, restaurants and apartments and everything now. But of course, when we opened our facility years ago, there was nothing on the North Shore. So um, We are on the North Shore, and actually we serve the entire state of Tennessee. We have clients that come from the entire state. We have clients that come from Georgia, Alabama. Um, The majority of our clients come from, however, uh, kind of the Hamilton, Marion, Ray County area, this region of the state. Uh, The majority of our clients do come from this region, but we serve, we, we have people from all, actually all counties in the state of Tennessee. We do have clients that have been in our facility in the last year from all, from all of the counties in Tennessee. So we are a pretty broad brush facility and that gives us some unique, you know, opportunities to help the, the greater good here. Sure. Um, and I, sh- I would be remiss if I didn't mention you guys uh, were our nonprofit of the year a couple <gasps> mm-hmm. years ago. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> we were the nonprofit. It was, a, it was a really exciting time for us. We were all very proud of that 
if you could see, but they can't see my lanyard here. We obviously celebrated this with a, a pin for all the employees of recognition. We were so proud. Our executive director, our board, all of our employees were so excited about that to be recognized as, you know, that that small business. And and then after that, we had another award that we were just so excited to get, which was uh, the Better Business Bureau. We were awarded this year for uh, excellence in business ethics by the Better Business uh, the Better Business Bureau. So we had another very you know, fun award for us to get. So we've had two back to back that we're very proud of and, and very just, I don't know, it just feels like it sets us in a real good position to let people know in the community what kind of business we run, um, what we want to be known for and those types of things. So no, it's very impressive. And, and you guys have a really sterling reputation in the community, for no, sure. Thank you for saying um, that. Which is part of the reason I wanted to have you on here, Great. Um, was to talk about what what makes Cadus different. Well, I think a lot of things are unique about this facility, if I may. Um, I've been with Cadus since 2000. So I've been with Cadus for 18 years. Um, I came to this facility. I've been in the, the field of addiction treatment for about 30 years. I came to this facility from a private facility. So I came from a private facility that was a for-profit facility. And when I came to Cadus in 2000, um, it was a wonderful way to blend I think what makes Cadus different in some ways is we are a private nonprofit. So that means we are um, private. You know, we have a board of directors. We are privately uh, run. And but we're so we're not a state facility. But a lot of people think, you know, we're a state. facility. We're not a state facility. We're not paid by the state of Tennessee. We get grant money to treat people from the state of Tennessee, but we're not a state facility. And so that that really frees us up to make our own decisions and be our own entity. We are a nonprofit, which also sets us apart because it allows us to take what any client that needs treatment for the most part. What I really enjoy about working at Cadus is there are very few people that we cannot treat um, regardless of their ability to pay. So, for example, we are in all of the major insurance networks. So if somebody has insurance, we're able to help out. Um, Medicaid, Tennessee's Medicaid product, which is TennCare, we're in all of those networks. And then we also have the ability through the state of Tennessee funding to treat those that don't have insurance. So what I really like about working with Cadus is that most of the people that call or come in, we are able to help in some form or fashion. And so that's a really unique footprint that we're able to have here in the community. Not other, some facilities aren't able to do that. And that's of no fault of their own. It's just the way they're structured organizationally. So we're really structured in a different way. And kind of back loop into your question, Jeremy, is um, I think what sets us apart is some of that, that um, we are able to treat people regardless of their ability to pay. We have people from all walks of life. I'll have people in group that are executives with a company, and I'll have somebody that's homeless in that group. And there is, although that sounds a bit odd, there is some um, synergy and, and some magic that happens with those people being together and realizing there are some similarities in addiction, no matter where you're from. It knows no barriers, no socioeconomic barriers. It knows no... Um, so it's kind of nice to have that commonality in a group. Um, 
and it presents, I think, a different approach to services. I like, for example, if somebody comes into treatment and we think they have insurance and then we verify their insurance and we find out this happens regularly. They lost their job. Their insurance expired on July 1st. We've already got them in treatment. Well, we are able with the funding that the state of Tennessee assists us with is we're able to say, okay, great, you're here. No problem. Let's, if you're grant eligible now, which means you don't have insurance, we'll help you get enrolled in our grant program. So we're able to kind of help that no matter what. And I can't tell you guys the number of times somebody comes into treatment, they have a job, they've lost their job, and then they think, what am I going to do about treatment now? What we're going to do about treatment is we're going to try to keep you in treatment. That's what we're going to try to do. So it, it really gives us, I think, a unique opportunity that, again, other facilities, no fault of their own, they may not be able to do that. Mm-hmm. So, so Debbie, walk us through how a person um, either can self-introduce themselves to mm-hmm. your services or, you know, um, a, a loving family member or friend sure. can introduce. Walk us through the process. Uh, sure. Of Glad to. Mm-hmm. We have an admissions department at CADIS that handles all the admissions to any level of care. So be it an adult, an adolescent, um, whatever level of care, that's where we start. And the admissions department will take that primary call and they'll ask some baseline questions of what you're using, where you're from, what your needs are, what's going on, what's the crisis that made you call today? Uh, because there's, you know, there's always some, um, some situation that's driving that interest at the moment. And we look at what we consider um, the acuity or the crisis level of that situation. And then we may make some referrals that are immediate. And so they call, we get them an appointment either with us or with our uh, partners that are our crisis walk-in center that we work with here in Chattanooga. So they start by a call, we make an appointment, they come in and we look to see what's the best level of care to start them in. So we have detox we have residential rehab we have intensive outpatient where they come several days a week we have a halfway house we have adolescent services so we look at all of that and find out where you best fit and that's where we try to start you um so we've recently added i don't know if you've seen on the how we fit these apartments on our property is kind of interesting but uh we've added 24 permanent apartments on the backside of our property. They're absolutely gorgeous. And these are permanent long-term housing units for people that are trying to stay sober. So after they've been in treatment with us for a period of time, they are able to live in these apartments. And it's they've been in, um, we've had residents in those apartments for a few months now. And that's been an interesting thing to see how someone could come from detox, go to treatment, live in our halfway house for a few months, get a job. And now we have permanent apartments for them to live in, which is really nice. But the first step is just to make that call to make that call. And, and to say, hey, I'm, 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 I'm ready, I'm ready. It's, you know, there's a juggle of that, because sometimes when somebody's ready, we have space issues, or we have appointments, we do our best to get them in as quick as possible. Um, and so again, based on the, the crisis level, we work very closely with other facilities and crisis departments in town, um, to say if, if there's something that you need to do right now today, let's take care of that. So that call is that first mm-hmm. thing. So. And you all really help uh, loving family or friend members walk through that process too. If Absolutely. there's someone they're approaching and how to approach that person. Absolutely. About, 
the need for treatment for mm-hmm. them, et cetera. It's mm-hmm. very hard, I think, because family members mm-hmm. are struggling. They don't know what to do. They they are concerned. What do I do? I see somebody falling apart. What do I do about that? And so what we try to do is a lot of times I'll talk to a parent or a spouse or a um, you know, significant other child, whatever, and and really say, let's figure out how you need to help get this person motivated and ready for treatment. That's very um, hard for family members because it is, it's very painful to watch your your loved one just disintegrate in front of you. And so, what we try to do is is a lot of times I'll give families resources. Hey, let's talk about this. Maybe you need to do X, Y, and Z to help get this person ready for treatment. Because a lot of times they won't come in treatment. They're like, mm-hmm. they won't come. Yes, they refuse. They're they refusing, and they're mm-hmm. like, I'm not going to do it. So a lot of what I will talk to people about, if I have an opportunity, is I want you to figure out what you can do to help that person realize there are options and also maybe uh, attend some support groups for yourself that give you kind of some strength and some skills to help get this person uh, ready to come into treatment. So a lot of times I'll refer family members first, you know, I'll be like, okay, why don't you do this, this, and this, go to these support groups, and you're going to learn, number one, you're not alone. Number two, what other people have done before you to help get somebody ready for treatment. Um, And and so we really try to help families figure out what those resources are, Um, We have, of course, if somebody's in treatment, we have family counselors in both our adolescent and our adult units that will work very specifically with family members on what to do, how to make sense of this and how to understand it and how to understand addiction as a disease and not a disorder of their character or a disorder of their uh, willpower. And so we really talk a lot about that disease with the family members so you understand it and the families get what somebody is really struggling with. It's very difficult for people to understand the power of addiction if they've never possibly had that um, education or personal experience, you know. So we do a lot of work on trying to help families understand that and and try to figure out how they can best navigate through some of those uh, difficult times. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's an important point. Um, the The fact that you guys approach this not as a moral hazard, but, mm-hmm. but as a disease and something that requires uh, ongoing treatment and long-term mm-hmm. commitment. Absolutely. Um, I think that is a probably a big part of what s- sets you apart mm-hmm. to some degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and I definitely want to make sure uh, as part of this that we talk about, um, for instance, if someone is listening to this outside of your service area, mm-hmm. uh, obviously the first thing we would recommend people struggling that they, that they go to CADIS mm-hmm. if possible. Um, but there has unfortunately been a lot of news lately surrounding the uh, recovery and, and treatment mm-hmm. industry uh, with, with fraud. Mm-hmm. So exactly. yeah. ha- if, if they can't get to CADIS mm-hmm. specifically, what would you recommend someone look for when looking for treatment? Um. A couple of things. There is the state of Tennessee recently instituted what's called a red line number. And I would like to leave that with everybody and say this is the number you start with. Um, call this 800 number. Ask for some options. The Tennessee red line number, um, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, will give you some options in your area, no matter where you are, for facilities that are 
licensed, credentialed, that have some access to some funding that may be helpful for them. The the number that, that we really push is 1-800-889-9789. That's 1-800-889-9789. And a lot of times people will call us and we will refer them to um, maybe a facility in their county, in their region that can assist them with uh, some grant funding. Or they'll call us and they'll say, I don't have insurance, but I live in Jackson, Tennessee. No problem. Let me give you the number of the facility in your area that will help you with some of those grant funds. Because we each have areas of the state for grant money. Now, we don't for clients that are, that are otherwise funded, but we each have areas of the state, this red line number is a great place to start. Great advice and extremely useful. I it especially if you're a family member mm-hmm. of someone struggling or or someone who is struggling uh, themselves, it can be confusing. Mm-hmm. And having some solid advice mm-hmm. on how to proceed, I think, makes a, a huge difference. And Debbie, Mike, kind of switching gears here a little bit, you know, hear story and story again about, you know, parents who come to find out their their child has an addiction problem or Mm -hmm. a family member. Well, what are some early signs? How can people, you know, is there an opportunity to see early signs and help loved ones earlier? Or, um, you know, what what should people look out for? Changes. And changes in behavior, changes in their friends, changes in what they do. I say the first sign of any kind of derailment is usually some changes. Um, That's not always the sign of derailment. It may be just the sign of other things. But when you're looking at changes in how someone's acting, um, their mood, their friends, their jobs, it depends on the age of that, you know, loved one. If it's an adolescent versus an adult, you know, um, you looking and not being afraid to ask. This is the thing I tell families a lot, um, especially I have a lot of people ask me about what do I do if I think someone's doing this or that or ask them that. Tell them you have concerns and I'm concerned about you. Um, they will not receive that well. It will probably be a, a difficult conversation, but it also lets people know that I'm concerned and I have my eye on the situation. I tell family, I'm one of the best things family members can do is, especially if you have, you know, kids, well, kids are in your home or, or even not. The crisis we're in in this country, in this state especially, with opiate use, mm-hmm. lock up your medications. Mm-hmm. I cannot stress that enough. I tell people, lock up your medications. You are, it's like having, you know, we talk about loaded guns in homes. You yes. are putting loaded guns in that medicine cabinet when you go to the dentist and you have 20 hydrocodone and you put it up in your med cabinet and you forget about it because you only took three or four. Well, guess what? You've got 16 sitting in there in the med cabinet that are um, very, it's just an opportunity for somebody to Mm -hmm. come in there and have access to that. So especially with other people in your home, lock that stuff up, dispose of it when you're done. I mean, the state of Tennessee has done huge campaigns, and I know we'll talk some about those today, but some of the campaigns are about you know, get rid of your medications. Get rid of those when you're done with them. Don't sit on them in case you might need them down the road. No, no, no. You're done with them. Get rid of them. Take them to a drop box. Take them to one of the drop boxes. You can go on many multiple websites and, and just Google 
Where do I take my prescription medications? There are now permanent drop boxes in police departments. No questions asked. I took a bag of medications, both prescription and non-prescription, down to the police department. And, and I mean, there's no questions asked. You walk in, they point you to the drop box and you open it up. It's like a UPS drop box and you just put it in there. And so that is what we need to do as a community is first say, don't be afraid to ask the questions. Don't be an unintentional drug dealer in your own home. Get rid of the medications when you're done with them. Don't keep them lying around um, because it is just an open invitation for people to come in Mm -hmm. and say, hey, they're not going to miss two or three of these. They're not going to miss four or five of these. And they probably won't, you know. So so just getting those a couple of those kind of things, Mm -hmm. but talking to people about it, looking for those changes. Um, that's really the first thing I usually hear people say is I noticed this a year or two ago, you know, there were a lot of changes and, uh, sometimes that's the first sign and just keeping your eyes open, not putting your head in the sand, you know, so talk to us a little bit about, you keep hearing about youth and our youth. I mean, how young of children are you seeing in your facilities? We take, um, we have admissions, uh, 13 and up. So a lot of my clients, um, I have a gentleman, um, he began, you know, using in eighth grade. Um, and um, so he's eighth grade. He's 13 years old. Uh, he's smoking a little pot, drinking a little bit, rocking along, doing sports, doing great. And then about 10th grade, things started really crashing for him. So and, and in graduated um, in, in graduated levels of, of problems, you know, first it was this and it was that. And then unfortunately, opiates came in the picture for him. And that's when things just spiraled out of control uh, very quickly. And so I think that it, you, you look at how young it starts. You're looking at a lot of the people I talk to that are in recovery or that are in treatment. Oh, yeah, that 11, 12, 13 age, um, knowing what your kids are doing, knowing who they're hanging out with. Um, so, I mean, that's one of the biggest things I think we can watch out for is being aware of that, not putting our heads in the sand. You already spoke to this uh, some, but um, in our, our first segment, uh, we heard from Blue Cross Blue Shield of Tennessee in their Don't Be an Accidental Drug Dealer mm-hmm. campaign. Cadis, mm-hmm. it seems, is is on the front lines of the opioid crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if you could speak a little bit to what you're seeing, what what you think is behind this and what can be done to combat it. Sure. I think there are. Uh, OK, so I would say, first of all, what's what's caused us why we are where we are is is really a very complicated question. But I think when you look at some of the uh, information that Blue Cross probably has that we have that we have all throughout the state is that when we look at the amount of prescription opiates in this state, it is staggering. Um, we are usually number one, two or three. We're number three now in the entire country in the amount of opiates per capita prescribed. Um Behind us are Alabama and Arkansas right now. We were in the number one spot. We have been in the number two spot. We're at least in the number three spot now. I'm not sure that's great news. But um, for every citizen of the state of Tennessee, there are 1.18 was the last statistic I read. So it's over one prescription for pain relief medication in this state for every man, woman, and child. So every citizen of the state has... We have that much of a prescription issue in this state. So when you look at that, that is staggering when you think, because 
I personally don't have a prescription for opiates in my counter in my cabinet right now. So if somebody has mine, somebody has my husband's and my daughter's. So if every citizen of the state has over one prescription, at least one or greater, then we know the amount of prescriptions that are being passed out in the state. So the problem is multifaceted, of course, but the amount of prescriptions. Now, there are a lot of things that are being put in place right now with certain legislative actions to try to slow that down. And I am fully supportive of those. The most recent one, uh, and you've probably heard about the Tennessee Together um, Act that Governor Haslam signed into place July 1st. And really, it's three-pronged. It's prevention, treatment, law enforcement, and looking at what we're going to do to uh, put up some um, barriers to people maybe being introduced to medications and then developing a long-term dependence on those medications. And there will be some resistance to this because what it says now is that you will get only a limited supply of opiates if you are not in an acute care situation. So in other words, if you're not having surgery and you're not a hospice client, you're not a chronic pain client, you're going to have some limitations on how much medication you should walk out the door with. And your physician has to justify, you know, how many days and why they're doing that. 10, 20, 30 day supplies. And this is new legislation. So it's going to be interesting to see. It's not meant to to put controls on on physicians. What this is meant to say is that we want limited amounts of very addictive medications to get into the hands of people that may can have alternatives to that. So there's going to be things that they have to do. Um, and I think those are some pretty good, uh, those are some huge steps forward for us. Well, you have certainly educated us today. <laughs> uh, thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank um, you for having me. Thank you and and Cadis for the important work you're doing in our community. Yes, we appreciate your thoughtful efforts. It's so necessary today. So well, we thank, thank you. you. Thank you guys for, for paying attention on this show to this this problem that we're all seeing in the state. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks. Chattanooga Works is a production of the Chattanooga Area Chamber of Commerce. It's hosted by me, Jeremy Henderson, and Christy Gillenwater. Production and music by Eric Lissica. Our executive producer is Sybil Topol with editorial assistance from Amanda Ellis. That's going to do it for us this week on Chattanooga Works. Tune back in right here in a couple of weeks for our next episode to find out whether or not the kids are, in fact, all right. Until then, work at Chattanooga. Chattanooga.